Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep Living Space by Isaac Asimov, which was a short story first published in the May 1956 issue of Science Fiction Stories. Jesse, uh, this is uh, not one of those robot stories, uh, which are probably the ones for which Asimov, an enormously prolific author, is best known. But you did suggest we take a look at it. I must say I I enjoyed it a lot. Um, What prompted you to recommend this particular story, Living Space? Well, I I love Asimov. I think... He's, he is maybe better as a short story writer than anything else. There's a couple of novels I like, but he he does um, he does something in his short stories, and I think this is one of them, where he's he's just thinking through a problem, and his thoughts are interesting, and and this, in thinking it through with him, I think we have the sort of a, an experience as he does about that issue in this case um when you think about sort of math questions of infinity it you know can make your head spin but he puts it in a practical sort of science fiction reality that allows it to play out in a in a pretty fun way i think i i see what you mean uh clearly asimov who you know as we know is uh a PhD in biochemistry and was a member of the faculty at uh, Boston University, um, or was it Boston College? Darn. Anyway, uh, he, he knows the science pretty well. He knows the science pretty well, and he likes to think, which is terrific. But I believe that one of the reasons that the story appeals to me is that it's not just a thinking through of the scientific issue. And it isn't even just, I believe, a look at the social consequences. I think the story is even deeper than that. Um, so maybe it wouldn't spoil anything if I, just for the sake of those who are unfamiliar, give a sense of what the plot is. Mm-hmm. Um, so Clarence Rimbro if that's how his name is to be pronounced, um, is an accountant who lives on his own planet that has his house with his wife, Sandra, and his two children. Uh, This is 1956, after all. Uh, So it's a lot like Levittown, I guess, Mm -hmm. except that there's no other house on this entire planet. It's a planet with a carbon dioxide atmosphere that the point of which, of having chosen such a planet, is that we know that no other animal or vegetable life of the sort that we know on our main Earth, Earth proper as it's called in the story, can exist, which means that it's not going to be problematic to put uh, an Earthling there uh, from the standpoint of elbow room, living space. (laughs) Of course, it is problematic technologically to keep them there, but we're sufficiently far in the future 
that people can have their whole world under a dome as well not the whole world they can have five acres under a dome so they have enough oxygen they can grow food and so on and what's most important is they have a way of communicating back with earth proper not only with words but in person uh, the premise is that Somehow people have figured out a way to get probability patterns. Um, there is some probability, there's an alternate universe, I guess, in which uh, the Earth didn't develop to have life. Or there's an alternate universe in which the Earth didn't develop to have me, but it still had you. And then there's another one that had you, but not me. And in fact, if we play these probability games, there are an infinite number of Earths. And even if half of them are uninhabitable, Half of infinity is infinity. So there's an infinite number of possible planets out there that are not occupied by living human beings. If you can find a way to, as it's called in this story, twist mm -hmm. so that you come up with a different probability pattern, what you get to this other Earth. And that's what they have done 2000 years in our future. They have managed to raise the population of Earth to three to a full trillion people, each of whom, most of whom live on these other planets that are other Earths with the same Earth, but a different probability pattern. And they all have their needs met by radiation from the alternate probability pattern sun and so on. It's all working very nicely, except on this uninhabited planet, Clarence comes home one day from work and his wife says there's been a sound. And he, of course, dismisses her because he dismisses her. Uh, I think it's because it's 1956 and she's a woman. Yeah. And yeah, right. And, and, and I think it's so clear that maybe there's a question as to whether or not Asimov means this as a, a light uh, feminist uh, critique. Uh, he comes home from work because you can twist your probability pattern, take you back to Earth proper. He's an accountant. Even though we're 2000 years in the future, apparently he has to twist, get back to Earth proper through one of these twist places um, and then drive to work. <laughs> it's amazing to me that yeah. they, they still need him to drive to work. An accountant of all occupations is one you would think could be done at a distance uh, through modern technology. You can already do that now. But anyway, this is 1956's vision of the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and the wife hears a noise. Clarence dismisses her. But then he, too, hears a noise when she wakes him up to listen to it in the middle of the night. And he goes and he complains to the uh, the housing sector bureau, the, the sector chiefs for that housing uh, sector, housing bureau. Um, and they are two people, Alec Mishnoff and someone named Ching. Um, and they have opposing views of this whole probability pattern uh, idea. Ching thinks it's terrific. You know, we can have unlimited space. Um, you can't help but wonder if as an Asian, he represents in 1956 um, a desire to accommodate enormous human population. Mm -hmm. Mishnoff thinks that it's a snare, that there's something bad going to happen, and we're not told what it is. One of the suspenseful things about the story is working our way through until we finally see what it is that Mishnoff has foreseen all along. At one point, 
he even remembers, oh, yes, there's a Slavic sound to my name. I think that's code for there's a Jewish sound to my name. Uh-huh. And uh, when, in fact, Mishnoff and, and Ching get to, uh, to this other planet, uh, that is to, to Clarence Rimbro's Earth, uh, they are able, using seismographs, to track down the source of the sound. And it turns out that somebody else is building a house there, and this other guy speaks German. And what they ultimately discover is that uh, that under Hitler, in some other alternate world, uh, in fact, Hitler won. And the planetary language is not English, but in fact, German. Fortunately, Mishnov, who learns the lessons of history, he's interested in archaeology. He knows some ancient German, communicates with the guy. And eventually, since the Germans recognize the priority of Clarence Rimbro's family on this particular probability pattern Earth, they agree to vacate. And so uh, a nice treaty is made with the Germans. But Mishnov says we are going to have to go through every one of our planets because who knows what could happen. And of course, what does happen at the end is that somebody on another planet hears a sound and that sound isn't made by a homo sapiens speaking a different language. It's made by some purple, many eyed, tentacled alien thing. And when that report comes in, uh, the members of the housing bureau look at each other in horror. So <laughs> expansionism, if not by other humans, then by some other creature, clearly seems to be an inevitable problem. Um, in some sense, then, the story is not just about figuring out what happens with being able to work these different probabilities and deal with infinities. It also becomes uh a question of what expansionism means and coming only 11 years after the end of World War II, when Nazi Germany had claimed the need for Lebensraum, living space, uh, to justify its uh, absorption of the Sudetenland in Europe, to justify its colonial uh, activities in Africa. Um, it's not unreasonable that a Mishnoff would still remember that you can make treaties with these people. Chamberlain did. But eventually expansionism, if it is not stopped as an idea, will create terrible, terrible problems. So to that extent, the story has a fairly obvious but nonetheless powerful political message, as well as the the fun of thinking through the science. Does that sound like a fair overview mm-hmm. of the story? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, I, 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 especially, I underlined that section where, um, <laughs> where they, he's come back to his boss at the, at the twisting, uh, academy or whatever it is, the Bureau of Housing. And he says, he says, we have to make some settlement with the other inhabited earths with the with the germans we can just come to some accommodation and uh so you're, you're saying he's uh, uh, that um mishnov's aware and i think he is aware he's he's aware of this ancient history and you know two thousand years ago the tribe of of the germans dominating uh, that world 
in their version of reality. And I, th- I think that what's kind of funny is that, as you say, only 11 years after the end of World War II, that Asimov, I don't think, is horrified. He, he's the opposite of horrified as a result of, you know, Germany having won the war. In the story, he's saying, well, you know, people in 2000 years will treat uh, Hitler in the same way that people uh, today treat Alexander the Great. Yes. Yeah, he probably slaughtered millions of people on his quest for, you know, empire. But that was a long time ago. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I think that it's it's both troubling and also, you know, that is the what happens when you look at history is that the the the, the problems they sort of fade and they fade away and and yet the world that they that, that they live on on Earth Prime or Earth uh, how do they call it? I think Earth it's proper. Earth proper, right? Earth proper. It doesn't sound like much fun to me either. Oh, so, snow. It sounds like a. I mean, well, there's a there's a really fun line um, that uh, is repeated twice. To hell with Malthus, right? Right. <laughs> that line about uh, Malthus's idea that we're gonna overpopulate the Earth and we're always gonna be on the edge of starvation because we are just un- incapable of controlling our our breeding or whatever um well they've solved that haven't they <laughs> but that's or bill ching that's bill ching who says that and, and you know right. bill ching and alec mishnoff have opposing views um of of what the housing bureau is doing bill mm-hmm. ching is an enthusiast and he wants to be able to say the hell with malthus we're told that alec mishnoff was in fact a student of archaeology and it was because of what he discovered through archaeology, which in this case, in fact, also means studying things like ancient German of the 20th century. It's because of that that he joined the Housing Bureau. So all along before he joined the Housing Bureau, he had thought through the implications of infinite probability pattern differences, which, as you say, Jesse, the story is inviting us to think through and try to get to the reductio of this uh, this scientific given. Um, he had thought it through before he joined the Housing Bureau. So Alec and Bill are really, or more culturally, Mishnoff and Ching are at odds about this. It's Ching who says, to hell with Malthus. Alec never does. Mishnoff wants to find an accommodation. I think the accommodation ultimately will have to be found within ourselves. We're going to have to limit expansionism. You know, um, this is a complicated story from a a tonal standpoint, as you're saying. um, Well, we always forget. We always forget. Well, when you use the example of Alexander the Great, we all know who Alexander the Great is. One of the, the jokes of this story is that the German speaker who is building a home on Rimbro's planet um, says that he's, you know, at a certain point and uh, he can't under, uh, Alec can't understand how this is. It's, it's a 2000 year, almost a 2000 year discrepancy. It turns out that the German counts the years since Hitler. Uh, When he reports, when Alec reports this to the bureau or to Ching, Ching says, 
who's Hitler? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, here we are, you and I, in 21st century in North America. We know who Alexander the Great was over 2,000 years ago. But 2,000 years from now, Asimov is suggesting, people won't even, unless they are students of the past, won't even remember who Hitler was. I think in 1956, that's a very complicated joke tonally. It gives Asimov, who after all was a refugee. I mean, he was born in Russia. At the age of three, his family left because it was no place for Jews. And then he grew up in the United States, mostly staying in New York for most of his life. Um, and, And here he is saying, you know what, Adolf, people are going to forget you. But he's saying it in 1956 when, frankly, there is not a living soul on the earth who has any access to news, who doesn't know painfully who Hitler was. And so to say we're going to forget you is is a it's a satire told from the standpoint of weakness. Mm. Um, Yeah, we won this war. But the question of Lebensraum, living space, expansionism, it's not going to go away. What I don't know, though, and this is to me, again, part of the, the complexity of the story. The the atrocities that were possible under the Nazi regime came about in part because they were organized in a system which we call fascism, which allowed for it, it enforced central government control. Who could do what? You had to have identity cards. Jews wore one color band on their sleeves. Homosexuals wore another marker. You know, this was complete control over the lives of people, what we call totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. Well, this world that Clarence is in, it has a planetary language and a planetary council. When Clarence married and became a producing citizen, at that point, he was assigned a planet, a probability pattern, and he has lived there ever since, 15 and a half years. Now, he, this accountant, seems to like the orderliness of a world under complete control. But I have to wonder whether or not we reading the story are supposed to think that this is a good thing, that maybe even Modern America of 1956, with its cookie-cutter Levittowns right outside Mm -hmm. of the New York that that Isaac Asimov inhabits, maybe he is criticizing our happy, casual embrace of totalitarianism there in the middle of the Eisenhower era. Um, I think this is a more complicated story, even though it's funny. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it ends with that sort of ridiculous description of the aliens, you know, looking into the into the house of someone else and the people being distressed and being, you know, under glass. <laughs> it is it is designed to sort of end in a punchline, but it does strike me that um there are some critiques that Asimov is doing one of the things that he does is that that German He's not really that German, is he? His name is George Fallenby, right? But he's living in some sort of similar to this world, 
uh, state in which the entire world has been conquered by uh, one language or the other. And they are having the exact same issues as the Earth that is the Earth normal, right? They have the problems of Lebensraum. And yeah, so I think that the 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 fact that uh, to me i was thinking mishnov and and ching these are sort of waves of you know imperialism in that you know the uh, ching said something like he was proud of his his mongol ancestry his deep dark you know back in his ancient uh, ancestry he's got some mongol in him and he was proud of that um, there's even mishnov, a reference to genghis khan in the in Exactly. Introduction. Exactly, and and of course the Germans and uh, and the Russians and uh, you know all of these sort of expansionist nations. Oh yeah, and and then there's this other one called the English, right? <laughs> uh, so I I think that the fact that what we see of the Germans in this story, they're not as I mean yes they come from a Nazi uh victory but that also was 2000 years ago and this this englishman with a you know who speaks german it seems to be reasonable he he it's not a um you know as far as we can tell at the end of the story the germans are keeping their word right time evolves and people are not static I think is kind of what Asimov is doing in showing that. And so it isn't, it isn't a one way. Um, wow. Look at what life under the Nazis would be like 2000 years from now. In fact, it's sort of because they're so normal, it reflects back to the world that we're seeing it from. And I noticed that the way the storytelling happens, um, that the authorial voice comes in a few times and I, I sort of wonder who's saying this. So, you know, it says Clarence Rimbaud had no objections to living in the only house on an uninhabited planet. And so we're sort of seeing it from his outside view. And then on the very next page, so where was the difficulty? And that's the, like, who's asking that question? It's almost as if Asimov saying, well, what would it be like if we had access to these other Earths, and you could have your own planet. What would be the problem with that? Well, one of the reasons that people want their own planet and the way they sold it, right, is that it it allows people to be smug in the knowledge that they are the king of a whole world, which is kind of pathetic, right? What what is the problem with sharing a planet with a few few other families, or you know, God? That knows a, a thousand other families. Oh my God, they have to have the whole planet to themselves. Indeed, indeed, I I, I, I agree. I think that Asimov is. Um, I mean, at one level, Asimov is saying, um, "Why not live in New York? You don't have to move to the suburbs. You know what's what's the big deal about having all this extra space? What makes life interesting is the other people that are around you." Um, and indeed, the description of the twist place where um, Clarence has to go to get from his job on Earth proper back to his home at the end of each workday is described as if it were a, a, a station on a commuting train line. He talks about exchanging pleasantries with the other people waiting to go to their planets and so on. Um, it is good to see other people. 
And I think one of the ways, and this is this is more subtle than Asimov is for most of his writing. And by that, I mean most of each of the pieces of his writing, because he can be subtle in any piece that he writes. One of the things that he does, I think, subtly to make us understand the pleasure of being with other people is never directly translating the German. Mm. So the first time we hear this man speak in a harsh voice, he says, Wer sind Sie? Was machen Sie hier? Um, Mishnoff was thunderstruck. He studied ancient German for two years in the days when he expected to be an archaeologist. Um, and he followed the comment. But but he doesn't he doesn't know. You know, I mean, he doesn't we're not told what was said. Right. Then stupidly, Mishnoff stammered, Sprechen Sie Deutsch? Which, of course, in 1956, having watched <laughs> war movies, pretty much any American would know what that means. The, the German, of course, thinks that that's stupid, you know, because, of course, I'm speaking German. Do you ask me if I speak German? Then he repeats impatiently, Wer sind Sie? Hier ist für ein narrischen Spaß kein Zeit. Which never gets translated. However, in the next paragraph, it says, Mishnoff didn't feel like a joke either, particularly not a foolish one. But he continued, Sprechen Sie Planetisch? Just thinking, well, maybe Planetisch is, you know, the, what they now call English. But then he realizes, no, no, he should have just said, do you speak English? Because to this guy, Planetisch would be German. Well, that thing... Mishnoff didn't feel like a joke either, particularly not a foolish one. It turns out that that line, here is für ein narrischen Spaß kein Zeit, is translated as, I mean, one could tra should translate it as, this is no time for a foolish joke. So what Asimov has done, and this happens repeatedly in this long conversation that, that uh, Mishnoff has with, uh, with the German speaker, um, he gives Asimov gives the reader the chance to see how much richer the story is when you feel that you have access to something you had not had access to before. When you mm -hmm. feel you can understand something that's foreign and actually enjoy it and take pleasure in it. What Asimov is doing is letting us see that the danger of expansionism is in wanting isolation. It's not that the danger of expansionism comes simply because of numbers. It's not that you can say to hell with Malthus, but you have to understand the limits of Malthus and then learn to deal with people. That's why you need to have a treaty. But what Asimov gives us at the end, this is that hor horrible joke. What if it's not people at all <laughs> that are expanding? then it may be impossible to make uh, some kind of uh, accommodation, which I think casts back to the attitude during World War II mm -hmm. of dehumanizing the enemy on all sides. That is, the Japanese dehumanized the Americans, the English dehumanized the Germans, the Germans dehumanized. You know, on all sides, you dehumanize. And so what the joke is, is, you know, sometimes... They really aren't human, um, which is OK in 1956, a comparatively peaceful time. Even the Korean War is behind us at that moment. But this is a this is a story motivated by a lot of trauma and by historical um, tragedy. And Mishnoff is the guy who 
from the time he starts studying archaeology, which is to say ancient 20th century history, recognizes that uh, technology is no guarantee of a solution. The technophilia that people have, that Ching says, nothing can go wrong, this is a wonderful solution, that technophilia is not enough. There's one, uh, there's one more theme that I thought was kind of undercooked in this story that I think allows us to think it's it's simmering in the background as as the main plot goes but i i love the vision of this story at the start we've got an a, a nuclear family on top of you know this under this dome on top of an earth filled with carbon dioxide no other living things they've got a few chickens they've got five acres of farm it gives the wife something to do during the day, which I thought was hilarious. It sounds like the wife never leaves leaves this earth. It's just the husband. And, and um, this lifeless planet that they're living on, the, the kids can play in it. The, the wife can go on. And the husband goes out and comes back. And he goes through this, this twist, right, every day on his way to and from work. And there was a line in here that I just it sent my mind twisting off in other directions. He says, it says, Rimro never worried about being in another probability. Why should he? He never gave it any thought. <laughs> and when he goes to that, the twist obelisk, um, he punches in his pattern and th there's almost never any problems, it says. Right. right. Every once in a while, some some person will get cut off, or you know, there will be an earthquake or a volcanic eruption or something, and somebody's house is destroyed. But that's nothing. There's even a line in there saying that's nothing compared to the old days when an entire city would be destroyed in one. But one who speaks that line? Who speaks that line, Jesse? Um, is it Mishnov? I think that's Ching. Is it? One of the problems with this this particular printing that we have that is the original science fiction stories is that it has pretty damn sloppy editing mm. and in fact there is a conversation between Mishnoff and Ching um, in which um, yes uh, they were on their way to the twisting place with full equipment Mishnoff said I want to ask you something why do you go through this there's no need to worry sir routine they always worry anyway where does it get you I've got to try. They shouldn't worry, said Mishnoff petulantly. Uh, but you see, it's not Mishnoff. It's it's clearly um, Ching who's replying. But it says Mishnoff. It's bad editing. Right. There's a place right. where the word life is printed as like. Um, right. And so I, I think – I think we have to realize that as smart as Asimov's story is, the editorial process of generating these pulp products to be sold in newsstands or candy stores like Asimov's own father owned in Brooklyn um, to, to generate these things uh, was not always top notch. Um, there are problems. Well, there are within faith in technology. That's true. Um, although the, the the point I was I was I was hinting towards it i i think is hinted towards in this story it's it's on that page that, though jesse when it says so one house is wiped out and one family dies see you're an obstructionist in the old times the I, times you like right if there right. was a flood in china that's ching speaking right well uh, 
Mishnah is not willing to is not willing to dismiss a single death. Right. Well, one of the things, though, that I think is is interesting is that if he, we know that all these infinite earths exist. If he goes through one of these doors, you know, on his way to work, and comes back, it's it's his wife. But if there's an infinite number of these worlds. What if the number's off just a little bit, right? There's <laughs> his kids and his wife, right? But that eh, doesn't matter. They're they're close enough. <laughs> you so, know. So that's another a, story. You're right. Yeah, that's another story, and it's it's never really dealt with, other than the fact that I think a lot of people might have problems. You know that they go, you know they go dimensionally traveling. They just, they're so, yeah, they've got so much faith in the technology that it doesn't, you know, it never occurs to them that the the wife and family that they love are not identical to the ones they, he left earlier in the day. You know, Jesse, you are proving the point about good science fiction, good literature, and I think our conversations, there's always more to say. <laughs>